This episode is sponsored by the Zoological Lighting Institute. The Zoological Lighting Institute funds the sciences of light and life for the arts, for animal welfare, and for wildlife conservation. Recognizing that natural light is a central aspect of animal health and ecological function, the Zoological Lighting Institute promotes understanding by including scientific and artistic perspectives in conversations about light so that proper and sustainable approaches to care and development can be taken by communities across the globe. ZLI understands that natural light is a key element of wildlife habitat. Artificial light at night and other modifications to the luminous environment, such as glass and asphalt, have radical implications for the physiology, sensory ecology, and integrated biology of animals and their roles within ecosystems. CLI promotes scientific research to improve understanding as to what artificial changes mean for animals and the human communities that depend on them. Find out how you might support ZLI's work at zli.org by participating in, sponsoring, or learning through its programs today. You're sitting outside at night with some friends. You put on your bug spray and you have lamps to light at your gathering. You may notice a swarm of insects surrounding the light, but those swarms probably aren't as big as they were in decades past. In many areas of the world, insects appear to be declining, as we discussed in past episodes with Dave Goulson and Kevin Gaston. The causes of the declines are likely diverse and include urbanizations, changes in agricultural and pesticide use, climate change, and changes in how we use artificial light. Artificial light at night, also known as Allen, Alan, or simply light pollution, has had a huge impact on organisms we tend to brush aside, both figuratively and literally. The insects. Alan alters what insects do at night, where they go, and how they interact, and it appears to alter decisions about when to transition from one life stage to the next. One group greatly affected by artificial light at night is the fireflies. Fireflies communicate by flashing to each other, Males flash out specific patterns and watch for responses from interested females. Alan is a big-time anti-aphrodisiac because the females just can't see the male signals as clearly. Avalon Owens is a PhD student at Tufts University who studies the effects of Alan on nocturnal insects. She's observed that Alan disrupts both patterns of daily activity and the timing of life history transitions. To go into diapause at the correct time, remember the killifish from our episode with Jason Berdrabsky, many insects measure day length, and Alan screws that up. The females, it turns out, are much more sensitive to this added light than the males are, and that could be for a couple reasons. The big one that comes to mind for me is if you have a streetlight and it's shining down, and the female's sitting on the ground and she's looking up, she's going to be blinded because she's staring right at the light. And even if she's not entirely blind, you know, if there's a male flashing between her and the light, how is she supposed to see him? In this episode, we talk with Avalon about insects and artificial light at night. We cover the effects of light on nocturnal insects, mechanisms by which Alan interferes with nighttime insect activities, her work on fireflies, and practical actions we can take to reduce Alan. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Artie Martin. And you're listening to Big Biology. All right, so let's jump into it. Um, thank you so much, Avalon, for joining us on the, the show today. Um, we're going to talk about light pollution. Some people call it artificial light at night. Some people call it ALAN. Some people call it Allen. And then there's all these names for it. So I'm sure we'll, we'll go across a, a bunch of those as we go on. Um, I think we, we want to set the stage by just talking about the scope of the problem. And people that listen to the show may have heard us talk about light pollution back in episode 53 with Kevin Gaston. Um, but 
for those that didn't, just what's the, the scope of the issue when we're talking about light pollution and in the U.S. in particular, what do we mean? It's a really big problem for a lot of reasons. Um, and probably the only reason that we don't think about it more is because it's a problem when we're asleep. Uh, and so there's a lot of bias, you know, we call it diurnal bias. Everybody's kind of interested in what's happening during the day uh, and not really noticing what's going on at night. Um, if you are out at night anywhere, you will be sure to notice that there are just lights on everywhere. It's especially bad in cities, but it is not an urban problem. I mean, if you think about highways, these are like lanes of light that stretch through the environment. Um, and also, I've been in extremely remote places, um, like the woods of northwestern Pennsylvania, and they'll have like some sort of oil or gas drilling operation where there's some sort of building and people have the light on. It's just on all night, even though no one's there. Um, and the problem is getting worse because lighting is getting cheaper and cheaper. And especially LED technology, it's super bright. And so you get these super bright light sources um, in even like what we would consider to be very natural areas. Uh, and most people just don't think of it as a problem. Once again, probably because they're asleep when it's uh, a problem. And so in terms of scope, I mean, you can measure light from a satellite. And if you do that and run some models, it shows that, what, 23% of the land surface of the Earth is unnaturally bright at night. That's ridiculous. It's quite, it's quite high. It's, it's like two times the amount of land that's uh, dedicated to agriculture, I think, worldwide. So, um, so it's hugely pervasive, but it's also, it's not just like, a diffuse thing, right? It's really confusing. There's all these local sources, and then there's also this thing called sky glow, where the light bounces up into the sky and it makes the night sky kind of bright, which is um, how we tend to think about it. And it's, you know, in cities, you can't see the stars, and that's what the first thing people think about. But actually, I think the bigger issue, probably as far as animals are concerned, are these local light sources, which can be present even in super rural areas. So, so the LED, LED technology has come on in part because it's you know, super cheap to run. So that must just accelerate the expansion of this into places because it's it's so inexpensive to run once it's installed, right? Yeah, there's actually this interesting... Um, so for whatever reason, um, when lighting gets cheaper, we don't um, save money. We instead just put more of it out. Put more lights in. It's yeah. like such a consistent human behavior that this is one way that people do like um, economic indices of like previous centuries is like how much did it cost to, you know, how much did you spend on light? You know, because that's like a very constant percentage of GDP, um, which means it's getting you like super, super cheap. And so you get things like, oh my gosh, all these house lights and these this facade lighting where it's like, oh, we have like a nice church in this town. We're going to light it up at night so that when people walk around, they can just see it. Like this would never be a thing, you know, 50, 100 years ago, but it's just like so inexpensive that people do it and they don't really think about the consequences. Yeah, yeah. After talking to Kevin Gaston uh, about some of these issues and, you know, preparing to talk to you and just just coincidentally, I also just read um, a super interesting book by a guy named Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep. Um, so and I've, I've been thinking a lot about about sleep patterns and sleep hygiene just just for myself and my my own family. Um, I've been like really noticing light at night and, um, you know, much, much more than I have before. And I'm, I'm just stunned at how much of it there is. And like, you know, like my, my neighbors right here, they have these giant lights on their, on their garage that shine all night. Like what, what's the point? 
I mean, I almost feel like walking over there and knocking on their door and asking them to turn. I'm not going to do that because I'm not that kind of guy. But, you know, why why can't people just let it go and let it be dark at night? It's funny you say that. I went to this uh, conference for the International Dark Sky Association and the keynote speaker uh, started his talk by saying that uh, light pollution, like studying light pollution or doing light pollution advocacy is the act of making people mad about things they never noticed before. (laughs) 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 So true. (laughs) And so, you know, everyone who's ever worked with me (laughs) is ruined, right? Like you can't, and I'm ruined most of all. You can't unsee this stuff. You can't unsee this stuff. You cannot go out with me at night without hearing about, you know, this and that and uh, just complaints. And it's, it's so unnecessary. There's so many, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, people will say, oh, I'm concerned about safety, right? And there's lots of, um, there's not really great evidence that adding lights to an area actually makes it safer. It's more like, you know, more uh, well-off areas tend to have more lights, perhaps. But um, apart from that, like, you know, even if you say, okay, yeah, I want people to be safe, obviously. So let's light up places where people are walking at night and they want to feel protected. Okay, that's like some tiny percentage of what's actually being lit up. Uh, there's nothing safe about, you know, putting lights on your house so you can see the nice, you know, facade, you know, roof or whatever. And and um, the other thing that really bothers me is curtains. I mean, especially with this like ecologically friendly um, glass architecture that is like sweeping the globe. You know, you'll get these huge glass buildings. You know, pure window. Um, lights and on inside, no curtains, just sort of polluting the environment. And that, that light's not doing anyone mm-hmm. anything. It's not doing anything for anyone. So let's, let's talk to you about, um, I mean, this is about the extent of the light and, you know, the oncoming wave of photons, but there's also been changes in wavelengths too, right? And those are important. So how, how has lighting technology shifted the wavelengths that are putting, that we're putting out in the environment? So basically, uh, the original like light source fire, it's like very orangey, uh, releases a lot of infrared, which is pretty inefficient. And so um, newer lighting technologies would try to like, you know, only produce visible light. And some of the early technology, it had a lot of UV in it and people can't see that. So maybe it's not a big deal, but it was super attractive to insects. Um, so like metal halide is an example of this. And then um, we got uh, these sodium lamps that are like really, you know, pretty pretty cool. They do like only emit like white light um, with a lot of yellow in it actually. And if you have a romantic image of like old gas lamps and they're so like amber and beautiful, that's because they're putting out mostly amber light. Um, And then um, LEDs came along and LEDs are um, really interesting to me. So it's this really powerful technology. Basically an LED can be whatever color you want it to be. Um, But there is no like white wavelength. And so the way that people make LEDs into white light is they take a blue LED and they cover it with some sort of fluorescent material that, phosphorescent, I should say, um, that absorbs some of the blue and releases it as longer wavelengths. Um, So that process means that LEDs have a lot of blue. It's not that anyone was thinking, maybe we should have more blue light at night, because in general, it's pretty ugly. People don't like it. It looks harsh. It looks like a prison, you know, complex or or something like hospital lights. And so in the beginning, that was all that we had, because if you put more and more of this phosphor coating on, um, it would be extremely inefficient. It'd get really hot. 
Um, and so it was like, well, you know, maybe this light is ugly, but it's so, so cheap compared to older lighting methods that it is, we've decided it's environmentally friendly. And actually, um, until a few years ago, there was the most incredible, incredible plaque up at Tufts in the um, parking garage. You went in and right in, uh, between the two elevators, there's this little plaque and above it, this unbelievably bright, super blue LED. And the plaque says, you know, Tufts University, this is the first LED that was installed in Massachusetts, and we are showing our di- our commitment to sustainability. And it's like this blinding, this blinding light. It's so blue. It's so awful. And it glows all night. It, and it's on all night, right? But but they're like, you know, it's really energy efficient. So in terms of climate change, sure, like LEDs are a great choice, but um, not in terms of you know actual life on the ground right now. Um, but technological advances have continued. And so now people can make much warmer LEDs. Um, and I still think LEDs tend to be way too bright. There's no reason people can't make them dimmer, except that, um, I think customers just like seeing big numbers on boxes. I really don't know. There's like this, um, rising tide sort of situation where, if your light is as bright as others, maybe it doesn't look as good as if it's brighter. The light arms race, yeah. Well, let's turn to um, the consequences of these things. Um, and your your expertise, your focus has been in the world of insects. So I think we should start with the conspicuous thing with light and insects, especially for those of us that live in places like Florida, those bug zapper things. Um, is it is it just me or are the insects that swarm around light poles and things like that, are they fewer in number than they used to be? It sure seems like it. What a great question. Um Yes, and in fact, your very observation is what, you know, a whole bunch of scientists around the world are using as evidence of insect decline. And it's a little more systematized, right? So entomologists, when they study insect populations, they do long-term surveys, which usually involves capturing the insects in some way and counting them. And the way that historically we've done it for generations is with lights. So we use light traps to trap insects, and then there's fewer insects at the lights, and then we're like, insects are declining, which is probably true. But um, there is also no sort of benefit for the insect of coming to the light. Um, And we could talk about this in a little more detail, but they, they, it's kind of an accident. It's just like, they're not really prepared to deal with a weird, like a street light. Like, what is that in terms of evolutionary history? They have no idea. It's completely novel. And so they come to the light, well, then they're probably going to waste their whole evening sitting there all confused, or maybe they're even going to die by hitting some hot part of it or getting eaten by a bird or a bat that's come to to feast. Uh, And so it would make sense for an insect to start to evolve not to come to lights. Uh, And we do actually see that. There's one very cool study from 2008 that shows that urban moths are less attracted to lights than their rural conspecifics. Um, they've just kind of learned that if you go to the light, you die. And so um, on the one hand, this is proof that coming to lights is very damaging. On the other hand, if all of our sort of data on insect uh, population trends comes from light traps, and it's not all of it, it's maybe 70%, I don't know. We're, it's really conflated. It's super conflated. So maybe we're measuring an evolutionary effect. Yeah. Huh, interesting. Um, but then you can balance that against like 
Oh, insects hitting car windshields, that seems to go down. There is a survey from the UK that showed that the numbers of insects that end up on people's, you know, front grates or whatever is, is a bit lower than it used to be. Um, and then there's, you know, the gold standard is flight intercept traps, which an insect would be difficult to, it'd be difficult for an insect to learn how to avoid. Yeah. You know, I want to circle back to this evolutionary potential bias that moths and things are evolving to stay away from the lights. Why did, why did they go to the lights in the first place? I mean, yeah, that we didn't have straight lights 10,000 years ago. We all get that, but they still do it. I mean, what's the point? Um, this is a favorite topic of mine and it's something I actually, you know, one of my secret dreams is to spend the rest of my career figuring this out because technically speaking, we don't know why they do it. We have a lot of theories, but it seems like it's different for different insects. It's very confusing. Um, give me a second. I'll tell you about the moth in a boat. Um, moth so, in a boat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, basically, uh, in the most broad terms, it's an accident. They don't benefit from it. It's a it's an evolutionary trap, you could call it. It's some sort of behavior that, in a novel situation, is not serving them any longer. Now, what could that behavior be? Uh, so the most popular theory, um, which is based on the fact that the insects that most commonly fly to lights are moths and um, maybe some flies and beetles and it's like specific groups. So the idea is that a moth flying around at night is going to want to move from one place to the other. And the best way to move from one place to another is in a straight line. How do you know how to go straight? I mean, if you close your eyes and walk, try to walk straight, it's not going to work. You need some sort of reference. And so the thing that they use is a thing in their visual field that never moves, a.k.a. the moon. And the moon is always, because it's so far away, it's never going to change position. And so if you keep the moon at a certain angle or, or even just like straight in front of you and just go towards it, uh, you will go straight. Um, but if you have a street light close to the ground and it looks like the moon and you get a little confused and you try to keep that at a constant angle, you'll go into it. You'll spiral into it or you'll fly straight into it. Um, so that's a really reasonable explanation, um, but a lot of the time insects don't spiral into lights. Um, they'll sort of, they won't actually go, they won't actually touch the light, they'll go around the light. Um, so, so a really cool study that I like a lot that uh, was one of the first works into this, um, I forget who it was by, I can look up the citation if you're interested. Um, but basically to study the actual flight paths of moths going to lights before camera technology was widely available. Uh, this fellow tied a moth to a little um, tether. He tethered a moth to like a little, basically the mast of a little ship. Uh, a little ship, and the ship was floating on um, uh, a layer, it was like a layer of oil, and then underneath was a layer of, of metal or something, so that whenever the boat moved, it would draw a line, basically, on some sort of thing underneath. And so the moth flies, and he, and he, he steers the boat, and you can see how, how exactly he's trying to approach the light. And what he found was that actually um, they'll kind of go to the edge of the light, if that makes sense. So if you can imagine, you know, a light as a sort of sphere, um, moths tend to go around the circumference and they never quite touch it. And so the reason that might be, uh, could be for a couple reasons. It could be kind of a visual artifact. Like if you um, see a light and you want to go somewhere dark, the place that looks darkest is right next to the light because of the contrast. Um, so that's one that's one reason. And then and then there's a whole bunch of other theories, like why is UV light so attractive? Could it be that this UV light signals some sort of open field or some sort of like 
beautiful flower. I mean, there's all sorts of like crazy ideas um, that they think that this light is some sort of desirable habitat. Um, but we really don't know. You were talking about, uh, you know, the different ideas for why insects are coming to lights in the first place. So is there anything else to say about, about that? Um, I think it's just the most important thing is that we still don't know. And it's unclear even how we could find out because it's really hard to figure out what an insect is thinking. And also, uh, it's not all insects that do it. And there's not necessarily an obvious unifying property of the insects that do. And the insects that do don't all go to light in the same way. Complicated. Yeah, right, right. So, so I had one other idea about why they might. Well, I guess it doesn't it doesn't explain why they come to lights, but why they might get trapped by lights. So, it, you know, if the insect manages to get attracted to a, a bright field and then it gets stuck there, is that you know because it's say stunned, like its system is sort of oversaturated with photons, or is it something like uh, you know it thinks the sun has come up? And it no longer should be flying at night because it's now daytime and it's it's sitting there. Is that? Yes, yes, yes. So thank you for reminding me. I forgot that one. Yeah. So actually, that, that could even be a reason that insects fly to light. Because if an insect is flying around its environment and then it randomly turns towards a streetlight. Um, now, this is a nocturnal insect. The thing that people often forget is their eyes are super sensitive because they're used to dealing with like two, two photons. You know, and all of a sudden you've got like a billion coming in. And so the insect will go either temporarily or possibly permanently blind. This isn't very well said, but at least will be like sort of temporarily like can't see anything. And if you can't see anything, you just keep going the way you're going. You don't really move around. And if you land at a light, right, um, let's say, so now you're blind at your light, you can either... It's like a light, a light well instead of a gravity well, right? They're just stuck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and so your eyes might adjust eventually back to, like, their daytime level of sensitivity. And so now you can see again, but hold on, now you think it's daytime. And so why would you bother flying around? You're just going to wait for it to get dark, and it never gets dark. Super interesting. Um, so so I'm like, super curious about this evolutionary effect, and I, I think I know what you're going to say based on the complication you just laid out. But um, is anything known about mechanisms that might be evolving that, that could explain this, this potential evolutionary effect? And, and probably the answer is no, because we don't even know the mechanisms to begin with. But like, wouldn't it be great to know, you know, A, if things are evolving and B, how? Yeah, I mean, I think what we really need is more studies that the one I mentioned about urban moths not flying to light, it's one study. It was in 2008 or 2009. And like nothing's been done since. And I think this is a, a very widespread phenomenon that nobody is measuring. Um, you know, everywhere, like everywhere you go, people, entomologists are saying, oh, the insects aren't flying to light like they used to. I have a fun little collection of, like, um, entomologists from the 1800s and early 1900s talking about going to lights and how many insects they saw, like, in their, um, near their porch light or whatever, and, and you just need, it's a very simple comparison to go to the same spot, you won't see the same thing. Um, but no, we don't, there's not enough studies of it, and have no idea what the mechanism would be. Um, seems really useful, given how harmful this behavior is. Well, so it's probably going to be another one of those things where we say somebody should study that. It's not been known. But I, I want to ask before we go to fireflies, besides the flying to light, are there other major pathways that are implicated in, in causing the damage? It, I mean, is there evidence that predation gets a big deal or, you know, d disruption of, of biorhythms? Seems a super conspicuous thing, but also not something easy to study in insects. So, well, actually, no. I think we we have more research on that actually, and I think 
Um, I go back and forth on which I think is more harmful because certainly flying to light is a very extreme effect and, and you can get like these mayfly swarms with like billions of individuals, you know, uh, all laying their eggs under a light on a bridge instead of in the water. It's like, okay, well, that's probably not very good. Um, but in terms of the, the developmental effects, well, that's super pervasive because um, insects use light in their environment, all animals do, to time their development to, you know, seasonally and over the course of their entire life. And for all of evolutionary history, these signals in the environment have been entirely constant. You know, the moon it waxes and wanes and, and the, the seasons change very predictably. Um, even more predictably than the climate, right? So we have all of these concerns about how climate change might be messing with the timing of, for example, um, insect-plant interactions um, or just the interactions of insects with other insects. Um, well, all of those concerns apply equally well to light pollution because light pollution is changing the other half of the equation, the, the light cues that insects use to, to develop. And I think... Um, in general, it seems to be the case that light is more important when an insect is deciding when to go into diapause or to hibernate for the winter, and then temperature is more important for when they come out in the spring. And so there are a few studies now showing that um, insects in the fall under light pollution, even though it gets colder and colder, they don't realize that winter is coming because the days seem longer. And so if they don't realize winter is coming and they don't do anything to prepare for it, like you know, go into diapause or, or build up some sort of, like, you know, all sorts of things. Insects can do all sorts of crazy things. Um, well, then they're just all, all going to die. And it's, and it's also, you know, the, the, the effects on plants play into this, and there's all sorts of studies about how um, trees and flowers, you know, the, their timing has changed, and, you know, all of these things are very interconnected, and we're just disturbing the web in a really major way. We want to turn now and talk uh, more specifically about some of your your own work, um, and maybe let's start with fireflies. So you've done this this really interesting studies looking at the effects of artificial light at night on fireflies and flashing and sexual communication, and and maybe let's just start by can, can you summarize for us what fireflies do and how they how they talk to each other using light? Yes. Um, there are, fireflies are a hugely diverse group, so I don't want to oversimplify. I'm going to tell you about the ones that we're familiar with, but there's over 2,000 species. They do all sorts of things. Some of them, for you know, all intents and purposes, are just beetles that come out during the day like anybody else. Um, but the ones that we're familiar here with here in North America are flashing fireflies. Um, so there's um, still a lot of species. I think there's around 150 I calculated yesterday for other reasons. Um, so there's all these species, and the, the basic way that they live their lives is they spend a really long time as a larvae developing either in the soil or maybe on tree trunks or in the leaf litter or sometimes in water, although not here, um, eating snails and worms and all sorts of things, which is the first sort of major frame shift is that fireflies are very fierce carnivores. They do not eat plants. They do not need plants. They're out for blood. Um, and uh, so then they spend about a year, maybe, growing. Um, and then they pupate. It's like a you know, butterfly turns into a chrysalis. Firefly larva turns into a pupa, turns into an adult. And the adults, much like butterflies, are only out for a couple of weeks, uh, maybe two to four weeks. And during this time, they don't eat. They don't 
move around all that much. All they do is look for mates, mate, lay eggs, and then die. Um, they're like fireworks, beautiful, but brief. Uh, and, and so the way that they find mates is with this really elaborate courtship ritual, um, which varies a lot by species, but the essentials are that the males will fly around their habitat. They'll do a sort of patrol. So it's a very slow flight. You can usually catch fireflies with your hands. They're not going very quickly. Um, they'll patrol and they'll flash um, using their abdominal lanterns, which house this biochemical reaction. They'll flash in these discrete patterns. So it might be uh, a train of, of six to 10 flashes or this really long J-shaped flash that had, they have this specific flight pattern. So it's about the timing and also the kind of spatial aspects of where, where and how they flash. The, yeah. the timing, the yeah, it's also a little bit about the color, kind of. They are different colors hmm. somewhat. Just like LEDs. Um, so they'll have their own little thing, their little advertisement. And so each male puts out his own little advertisement. And the females are sitting on the ground, and they're looking up and watching. And if they see a guy that looks really attractive and he's close by, then they will flash back. And the male will usually come closer, be very excited, keep flashing. She flashes back. All of this has a very specific timing. The, the amount of time it takes a female to respond is indicative of her species and, um, and so on and so forth. And so then the male will land and then they'll spend about 30 minutes trying to find each other because they are not very smart. And then eventually they do find <laughs> each other. They mate, lay eggs and so on. Wow. So what's the, um, I mean, with, with the mating sorts of things, what's the male doing? How different are the males? Are they different in intensity? Are they different in color? Are they different in the janus of their flight patterns? Or how are the, how are the females doing the discriminating? Why do they care? Mostly, the males can actually differ in a lot of things. So you might have a species, and it's actually, there's different, different types. So there's a long flash species, a single flash species, that's kind of like a group. And then there's species that do double flashes or like more flashes for each flash pattern. And um, previous research by my advisor shows that uh, for the single flashing species, if a male flashes a little bit longer, and especially if he's brighter, that's more attractive. So it's just like a little bit more pronounced. Whereas for the ones with two or more flashes per flash pattern, uh, the faster the guy can go, the more attractive he is. So if he can really like blink really quickly, the female likes him. And um, also brightness, again, they, the females tend to like brighter males. Or, they might not even like them. It might just be that they can see them better. Is, is that a way of assessing male size? So, so brighter flash equals bigger male? or Probably. An individual male can change its, his brightness, though. So it's not necessarily like the size of his lantern per se, although certainly bigger males will have sort of by default bigger flashes. But a smaller male can maybe try to pretend that he's bigger by flashing really brightly. And again, I don't think it's 100% clear whether this is a female preference as much as simply like, can she see him or not? And if she sees him close enough, she'll be into it. How much has that been dissected at the biochemical level? I mean, is it it's lucifer, luciferase that's causing this signal? Is that is that right? I'm just guessing. <laughs> just guessing. What a great guess. <laughs> well, I mean, we all know about, we're, we're all biologists. We all, all heard about luciferase. Um, is it that the males, I'm especially intrigued by the, the males that sort of flash faster, do they have more adept luciferase or anybody know how that's achieved? Um, we do know a little bit about it. Um, so uh, like you said, the bioluminescence reaction, it's a chemical reaction. It's a luciferase enzyme breaking down a luciferin substrate. It works essentially like a glow stick. When you combine these things, um, they produce light. But the fireflies can control when the glow stick is combined versus not. And they do that 
um, through neural signals, actually. So it's octopamine comes down from the brain, um, and it gets sort of into the lantern, and it displaces, um, what is it, it's another thing, which <laughs> it's been a while, I'm rusty. You could say anything, Avalon, I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> Just places, I think it's, it's like it sticks to some sort of thing, which frees up an oxygen. That's the important part, because the chemical reaction is oxygen mediated. Uh, and so once there's a little bit of oxygen in the lantern, the flash occurs. Now, what this means is that if you take a firefly and smear it on your arm, as some kids do, which I, I would never do, it's horrible. I've done that in Oklahoma as a kid. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the reason that that will glow for a long time is because you're exposing all of the stuff to oxygen. And so it's allowed to sort of freely react. Whereas in the firefly itself, the, the exposure to oxygen is tightly controlled by the individual. And so it's sort of the speed of the, the neural signals, I suppose, that makes the difference. Okay, well, let's, let's talk now about how artificial light at night uh, affects this kind of signaling. So what, what does it do? So um, essentially... It's all about visibility. Um, that's the whole fire. They, they live in a very simple world. All they're trying to do is see flashes of light against darkness. And um, when you have not darkness, it makes it a lot harder to see the flashes of light. And that kind of ruins the whole thing. I mean, really. And so um, basically what we've found thus far through almost probably over a decade of research is that if you put... Uh, a street light or something like it in a firefly habitat, the males will flash a lot less. And the sort of drop in the male activity, it depends on the species. One thing I didn't mention is that fireflies come out at different times. There's some that are active right when the sun sets and some that come out, you know, only at like 10 p.m. and you're up all night. It's not my favorite. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so the way that the males respond to the added light kind of depends on how resilient they are, I guess, um, to light in their environment. But in general, they won't flash as much. Um, now, that's been known for a while. But um, my big discovery, <laughs> if you will, I mean, it's, it's still building on previous work. But um, uh, all of the, the work that focuses on what the males are doing, no offense, kind of misses the point. Males are not really all that important as far as fireflies are concerned. There's tons of them. They're super replaceable. Um, and the females are the ones who decide um, who makes it to the next generation. And the females, it turns out, are much more sensitive to this added light than the males are. And that could be for a couple reasons. Um, the big one that comes to mind for me is if you have a street light and it's shining down and the female's sitting on the ground and she's looking up, she's going to be blinded because she's staring right at the light. And even if she's not entirely blind, you know, if there's a male flashing between her and the light, how is she supposed to see him? I mean, she would have to have really discriminating vision to, to sort of pull out that green from the rest of the illumination. And so the females are much more sensitive to light. And so most of previous research has kind of ignored what the females are doing because they're very hard to find. When you take into account what the females are doing, you see this very interesting pattern, which is that essentially male fireflies, I don't think they really care about the light itself. I think they have two modes. They have the, um, I'm flashing, a female's flashing back. I'm having a great time. I'm going to get lucky. Uh, and I'm just, <laughs> Let's party. You know, and I'm just flashing and flashing and flashing and having a great time. And then the second mode is, 
um, I gave a little flash and then nothing happened. There's no, you know, I don't know where the girls are. I feel a little discouraged. Maybe she doesn't like me. And so they'll sort of, um, they get literally, they seem discouraged. They'll, they'll flash half-heartedly. It's not the standard, <laughs> oh, no. like, interval between flash patterns. It's like a flash pattern here and then a flash pattern there. And then they're like, okay. Um, and so the, the drop in male flashes could actually be a sort of effect of the females just totally shutting down and not wanting to engage. Super interesting. So um, is there a difference in, in the responses according to whether the, the fireflies are crepuscular or nocturnal? So the, the ones that are sort of, you know, right as the sun is going down, are they more resilient to, to streetlights because they're sort of better able to deal with light in the first place? Um, nobody has done a really well-controlled study. I mean, in the past, a lot of the nocturnal crepuscular sort of comparisons have been between fireflies of different genera, which is not helpful. And specifically... We have Photinus, which is, there's a lot of crepuscular Photinus. These are like the classic summertime fireflies that you think of. And then we have Futurus, which are fully nocturnal, but also predatory. They're not flashing for the same reasons. They're trying to eat other fireflies. It's very bizarre. And so these things are not really directly comparable. That being said, we do know that um, based on a study that compared uh, Photinus pyralis and Futurus versicolor, that the fully nocturnal predatory firefly does seem more affected by light than the crepuscular one in the same habitat. But we're really, really lacking a study. I mean, there are fully nocturnal photinus fireflies. Um, I've worked with some before. Um, The trick is getting a large enough sample of both nocturnal and crepuscular species to compare so that you can actually make a statement. And nobody's done that. But my guess is that yes, <laughs> the crepuscular ones are more resilient. Yeah. So I'm going to take a little bit of a, of a sidetrack here, Evelyn, because did, did you do this work in Taiwan? Is this the work in Taiwan or was this stuff in the States? This is new. This is new from Tufts, but it's kind of builds off my previous work in Taiwan, which I'd be happy to tell you about. I, I wanted to talk about that, that work, but I, my bigger question was how did you get into fireflies in particular? Was there some experience? I mean, I think that was one of the first papers that I stumbled across and I saw that it was in Taiwan. So I wondered if it was some particular experience in Taiwan that led you down the firefly road. You know, I study fireflies because somebody has to do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I feel about house sparrows. <laughs> Uh, no. So I, I grew up in Idaho, which does not really, it, it does have fireflies technically, but I'd never seen any. They're not very widespread west of the Rocky Mountains. Um, certainly not the ones that you would want to go see as a child and smear on your arm. Um, and so I went to, I moved to Boston for college and I did see fireflies a couple times during college, but it was never like, it was like awesome. It was awesome. Right. I, I do remember the first time I saw a firefly it was like, well, this is really incredible. Um, but I didn't think much more about it, um, until I started my master's. So, um, after I finished undergrad, I needed some research experience because, um, although I majored in biology, I spent most of my time learning Chinese and like dreaming about moving to Taiwan for completely separate reasons. But it also happens to be the case that Taiwan is super biodiverse. Um, and also they are really welcoming to international, um, scholars, I guess, uh, students. And I was able to get a scholarship for my master's degree that was like fully covered where I could go and live in Taiwan and study entomology, which is something I was interested in. And so I showed up uh, at National Taiwan University, um, you know, my my first semester and uh, my advisor took me around the department and I interviewed various labs. And then he was like, you should be in my lab. And I was like, that sounds great. Uh, And he, he sat me down and he asked, 
do you want to work on bees or fireflies? And I was like, it's not really a joke. (laughs) Duh. And yeah, but it turns out the reason, it's actually a huge coincidence. So the reason he was so interested in getting a firefly research program going was because the International Firefly Symposium, which is this sort of what used to be a small scale um, gathering of firefly researchers from around the globe, it meets every three years. Um, Taiwan had won the, the 2017 um, the, the right to host the 2017 International Firefly Symposium. And it had actually been um, kind of a contentious fight between Chinese firefly researchers and Taiwanese firefly researchers to host the symposium. And so maybe there was like a little bit of that going on, but they really, really, really put a lot of money, the Taiwanese government did, into making this symposium absolutely incredible. And part of that money went to research. And so that's how I got roped in. But something that's really cool about the, the build-up to the International Firefly Symposium is that as part of it, the Taiwanese government paid for these firefly reintroduction programs at a bunch of parks around the city of Taipei, which is this hugely um, urban area. And they went and they had this um, native species that, you know, they knew how to rear it and stuff. And so they went to these parks in the middle. It's like It's like in the middle of New York, basically. And they created these special firefly habitats and released the fireflies there and put fireflies back where they hadn't been for a hundred years. It was a huge success. And part of it, um, because it, you had this like human firefly interface, um, they were really interested in lighting and how can we light these parks so that people can walk around and see the fireflies, but it won't disturb the fireflies. And so that's sort of, that was my research program. Wow. That's amazing. It's great when all of those things come together. What, what, what was it like living and working in Taiwan? It was great. I loved it. I've been dreaming about living there for a really long time. How's your Chinese? It's good. I studied it before I went, so I studied abroad. Um, so you're sort of ready to ready to go when you got yeah, there. I did a, yeah, I did my program in Chinese, except for the writing. I defended my master's thesis in Mandarin, but it was written in English. Wow. Wow. Awesome. So back, back, just really quickly about these parks in Taipei. Are, are these fireflies still active and healthy populations and all of that? I mean, you said it was successful, but is it a long-term success? I haven't been back, and it's actually kind of hard to check. It's like a very specific question, and it's not like, you know, I should really ask somebody. It just hasn't occurred to me. I'm, I'm, I feel confident that they're doing well. Um, I mean, there's a lot of care. It's not, and it's not just like a set it and forget it type of thing. This is a program where they are sort of constantly maintaining these populations, making sure that the water is of high quality. Um, nice. And so on nice. And so forth. Well, good. So we've been taking a lot of your time, and we do have a few more questions. If if you've got the patience for us, um, I want to I want to zoom out a little bit. Unless you have another firefly thing that you wanted to hit, Art. Uh, I could talk about fireflies for the next couple hours, but um, <laughs> we we should move on. So, yeah. You know, so let's let's talk about. Um, I think you and I have had exchanges in the past about vectors of of infectious organisms. Uh, you know, bacteria, viruses, those kinds of things. Is there any research going on now that you know of? I mean, what what's the sort of highlights? Are things that transmit malaria and West Nile and all those those fun diseases are those more common in light polluted places, or or what are we learning? Yes, in short, yes. So uh, this is, I think, I think this field is going to blow up. I just see it. I see it on the horizon. Um, it's it's hugely important, and it's just people are starting to realize it just now. So um, if we're talking about insects flying to light. Lights are where people are. Mosquitoes love light, you know, and mosquitoes carry a lot of diseases. And so there are a few sort of small scale studies about incidences of 
mosquito-borne and Chagas disease, which is not mosquito-borne. It's like bug-borne, yeah. Yeah, it's bug-borne, where disease incidence is higher near in sort of lit areas. And there's also more large-scale type of things that show if you electrify a town, you tend to increase the disease incidence possibly because electricity means lights, means insects. It's a bit of a of a jump, but I think it's pretty feasible. Um, and so I'm really interested in that. I mean, from an insect perspective, also think about bats. Bats have been in the news lately, huh? Yeah, a little bit. And, you, know, <laughs> you know, they come to lights. They certainly do. And so that's, again, a sort of human-animal interface where a lot of disease can be spread. Hmm. Are there any uh, transfers that have been at small epidemics that have been implicated in especially light lit places for bats in the recent past. I mean, they're the great examples of, you know, the starts of uh, certain s- small-scale outbreaks, spillovers um, near farms where bats are roosting in mango trees next to pig things. But um, any, anything for lighting? Uh, nothing comes to mind, but I almost wonder if, like, this is this thing in science where almost all of the field sites where people do research have lights, but people don't even treat it as a factor, really, when they're, you know, it's just... Because, you know, if it's during the day, you, know, you don't think about it. And so I think it's entirely possible that there's something, some pattern there that we've just been ignoring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to ask about one other e- ecological thing, and uh, this is also a big one, but just plant-insect interactions more more generally and effects of artificial light at night on those. And, you know, I, I can imagine a lot of mechanisms by which that might happen, right? So if you, if you disturb night-flying pollinators like moths, uh, that could be super important. If you disturb, say, feeding patterns of, of larvae on plants, that that could have an effect. So so what, what do you think overall are the effects of light at night on like plant insect interactions and trophic like trophic cascades that come out of those? Uh, so there's been a couple really big papers on this very topic published in Nature um, by Eva Knopf and her and her lab, um, basically showing that whoa, um, we tend to totally discount nocturnal pollination and how important it is. I wonder why. <laughs> Diurnal bias. A lot, yeah, I know. A lot and a lot of nocturnal pollinators, specifically moths, are a really good example, but there's also bats and um, some other smaller things. And um, yeah, it's hugely disruptive. And if you, you, know, you have a light near a garden, the moth will spend more time near the light than it does on the flowers. And so these things don't get pollinated. And like anything in ecology, if you perturb the system, a bunch of other things happen. You know, so moths not pollinating, that's like one factor that seems to be pretty common. There's also this idea that um, predators will come in to feed on moths and other flying insects. And some of those predators are insects like carabid beetles um, or even spiders that eat, eat insects. Um, and so they're sort of, you'll get this accumulation of big, you know, predators looking for stuff to eat, which just changes the dynamics as well and i mean there's a lot this is a whole field whole field of research and i think the big takeaway is like stuff changes um one of my favorite studies shows that um it's on aphids and ladybugs and there's these two ladybug species um that hunt at night around yeah around twilight let's say so there are these two ladybug species that are hunting aphids and one of them is sort of visually guided they're looking for the aphids and eating them and one of them is sort of pheromone guided or or uses sort of touch cues or whatever Um, and when you add light to this environment the visually guided ladybug does a lot better because you know what it can see a little bit better and it can go and it can find these aphids and then the other one does not you know and then there's this competition this sort of interaction and so once again 
sort of perturbing the system and seeing what falls out of it. So let's let's try to wrap things up with a, a positive spin, if, if such is, is possible. Um, if, if you could give one piece of advice to sort of the, the average homeowner and one piece of advice to the policymakers that are influent, you know, those those completely glass buildings um, turn off besides turn off the lights. I mean, what what, what would those be two pieces of advice be? Um, so I have a, a controversial view which is that a lot and a lot of recent research in this area has focused on this thing called spectral tuning, which is this idea that we just need to find the right kind of light, and then we can have light and the animals will be fine, and we can see the stars and everybody wins. And it's a beautiful, beautiful fantasy, <laughs> but... <laughs> I think I know where you're going with this. There's no... <laughs> There's no color of light that only humans can see. We're just like not that special. Um, and so uh, a lot of people have settled on, you know, balancing the various human interests. They've settled on amber because amber is like kind of reddish. And it seems like, especially for insects, you know, they don't fly to it as much. They're really attracted to blue and UV. So amber must be insect friendly. And there's other reasons. I mean, blue is especially bad because of circadian rhythms, because of the way it reflects in the atmosphere for a whole bunch of reasons. So, okay, we'll go to amber lights. Uh, well, amber is the worst for fireflies by far because it looks a lot like a firefly oh, no. flash. The overlap is incredibly large. And so, you know, people are always asking me like, oh, well, what color should my lights be? And I do think that the redder the light is, the better it will be. The, the closer you can get to infrared without being infrared, the better. And then you're like, okay, well, who wants red light districts everywhere? Okay, yes. And then, then we can talk about that. But as far as ecologically friendly lights go, sure, red is the best color, but it's the best of the bad options. And what people ignore completely is the intensity of the light. So a super, super bright red LED, it's not just red. It's the way that light spreads. It's like this, you know, it's the way that vision works and that light works. You have a bunch of probability curves. And so you might, as an insect, have a very low probability of seeing a red photon. But if there's like a billion of them, you will probably pick them up. And you might not think they're red. You might think they're green. But that doesn't really matter. You're still seeing it and it's still disturbing you. So we really, really, really need to focus on dimming the lights that we use. So... Obviously, the, the best option is curtains and turnout lights that you're not using, motion detectors. The best color is black. <laughs> but the best, yes, the best color is darkness. Um, and I really, really dislike the idea of us going out and telling people, well, you just need to buy this other thing. And then somehow it'll, like, we're going to like live in a utopia. Because like, you know, the most basic change that you can make to your house, it doesn't involve buying anything. Um, you can put like literal sheets of computer paper over an LED light and just make it a lot dimmer. And, and you know, LEDs are cool, like in terms of temperature, like it's, it'll work perfectly fine. Um, and you'll find that you really don't need lights to be that bright to see in the dark. So dim, keeping lights as dim as possible. That's my number one recommendation. Color is a distraction. That's a subheading. I think that's really important. <laughs> and then the final thing I'll say is that unfortunately... It takes our eyes about 30 minutes to dark adapt. If it took our eyes one minute, I swear we would not have any of these problems. Because if it seems dark outside and like a little bit spooky and you just sit there for a little bit, 
is fine. Your eyes dark enough. You can see a lot more than you think you can. But people aren't willing to wait. So I would say patience is my number two idea. So, so how, how, I mean, you know, I'm totally on board with your message, clearly. Um, but, but how do we actually affect large-scale change to make, make this happen? I mean, besides ra- raising awareness and getting, you know, people to hopefully listen to podcasts like this and start to agree and take action, what, what do we do? Yeah, I think there's two big things. Um, so the most successful efforts thus far have all been about seeing the stars. I mean, people have incredible, you know, people who are lucky enough to have seen the Milky Way know how incredible it is and what a special experience that is and want to, you know, protect the night sky for its own sake, because it is like so incredibly beautiful. Um, and so that's what the International Dark Sky Association has been working on for a long time, is, is this idea that you know, the night sky itself is very important and worthy of protection. Unfortunately, um, some of the things that, the, that are good for dark skies are still bad for insects. For example, shielded lights. You know, if your light doesn't go up into the atmosphere, that's great for the astronomer, but it doesn't matter for the firefly that's sitting right under it. So that's been, that's been really successful, but I think we're moving into a new stage where we need to start really thinking about what's happening to animals. And I think, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but there is one nocturnal animal that comes to mind that everybody really likes and wants to see, and that is the firefly. I mean, they are such incredible ambassadors of, of nature's magic. You know, it's, it's seeing fireflies, it's, it's unlike anything else. It's, it's like science fiction, but it's real. And it's on, and it's on Earth, and, and people love fireflies, and they want to see them in their backyards and in, in parks and things like that. And it is achievable, but one of the big things that you know stops it from happening are you know all of these lights. And so I think fireflies, you know, they may be small, but I think they can affect a lot of change by using them as you know sort of example of, of an animal that's affected by our actions that might encourage us to change the way we live. Mm. I'm on board. Yeah, sign, sign, sign me up. Well, hey, thank you so much for this. This has absolutely been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. Um, we don't, we don't want to to go though until we give you the chance to say anything you'd like to say that we didn't think to ask you. Um, amber light is not as good as people think. <laughs> Turn off your damn lights. <laughs> and, yeah, and buy some curtains. Damn it, it's not that hard. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please consider donating through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Patrons get access to awesome perks like video recordings and early access to our Meet the Scientist interviews, where our guests talk with us about their scientific heroes and their non-scientific hobbies. And this episode was our last one of season three. We're taking a break now until the end of August when season four will get underway. Our first season four chat is with Mark Denny from Stanford's Hopkins Marine Station. We'll look for you then. Thanks to Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Jordan Greer, Ajinki Itahake, and Dana Baxter manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear. <laughs>